my goal in opening up my jewelry store was really to create a place that I would feel comfortable shopping because in all of my years of following my mom around shopping for jewelry or even shopping for my own engagement ring, I always thought that jewelry was very intimidating. And I thought there has to be a way to change that environment. And that was the primary driver behind creating revolution. This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today we have Jennifer Farn. She's the owner. She's a master faceter. She's a graduate gemologist. And she's the owner of Revolution Jewelry Works. And I've had the pleasure of doing some business with her on a parking lot crash with my wife's jewelry. So we're in the midst of getting that done. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, tell us about your business and who you serve. Well, Revolution Jewelry Works, being in the beautiful mountain city of Colorado Springs, we do have a lot of military personnel locally. But beyond that, it's a very rapidly growing city. And that was where we wanted to start our focus. We wanted to create something that was accessible to the city of Colorado Springs with the goal of world domination. (laughs) Got to start somewhere. (laughs) Exactly. But the big thing that was missing here in the Springs was a place that you could go for custom jewelry. Now, there were a lot of old school jewelers where you could go and request something custom, but essentially you would sit down and they would be hand carving a wax for you and you would get a look at chunk of green material and say, I think that's what I want. And then maybe a year later, you would have a finished piece of jewelry, and that is what it is. And with today's technology, I knew that there was software out there that helped people visualize what was being created and make it to where they could actually picture what this is going to look like for me and how it's going to function in my life, rather than just having to guess. And we've got an entire generation coming up of consumers that have been accessing flexibility in every aspect of their life. You can pick your shoes, you can pick your phone case, you can customize your car and everything about it. And it's one thing to go into a jewelry store and be told, I can customize something where you can pick this mounting and you can pick this setting and you can pick this shape of diamond and put them together and it's a custom. But that's not custom. You know, we have people that we encounter day in and day out that are really hardcore fans of World of Warcraft, which is an online video game. And they found each other because of this commonality of a video game. And they want to represent their love for each other because of this thing that brought them together where before they probably would have never met. And so we've created rings with a theme of World of Warcraft. We've created rings that have to do with The Legend of Zelda or Lord of the Rings or any of the above. And it doesn't have to be something that themed. It could just be that someone says, I saw a ring that I loved, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted. And whether it's they saw a ring that invoked an emotion, but they have their grandmother's diamond and that ring isn't made for that diamond. Okay, well, then how do you go about making that happen? And at least half of the custom jewelry that we build is using heirlooms because people are inheriting these very precious items from different family members and they want to keep it as a part of their life. You hear the term disposable society, but there are still things that are very, very precious that people do want to hold on to and incorporate. And 
instead of letting a piece of jewelry just sit in a jewelry box forever, why not turn it into something that you can wear, that you can enjoy, and that breathes new life back into something that has so many very, very cherished memories? And that is something that was completely missing in this market was the ability to deliver that full flexibility in custom design. And that's what I wanted to create, a safe educational space that people could just come and get what they want instead of being told, these are your only options and just live with it. The fun part about this podcast is the reason that we're doing this is you're doing some work currently. Yes. For my wife. (laughs) And what you just said reminds me exactly of why she was here. We have a wedding band that's been in place for 30 plus years. It got beat up in an accident. We had the stone. The wife says, I want to use some of the gold and my next recast. We were able to sit down and she said thinner, thicker, taller, shorter, this way, that way, the other, this kind of basket. In fact, for the folks that are looking on the video, you can see some of the CAD work right here. And so literally as you're sitting here with the CAD, you can visualize, move the diamond, move the basket, twist the basket, all of this detailed stuff. And then once that's done, you can say, this is what the ring looks like. And there's a picture of the gold or white gold, yellow gold, whichever. And so there are all of this truly custom visualization. And then the next step is you come in and you get to see a wax cast of it done, I think, CAD, via your CAD program. Yeah, we take the exact digital representation of the ring that you approve on the screen, and we have a mill as well as a prototyping machine that takes all of those digital components and creates it for us in the wax or in resin. And then we come in, we did come in, and we got to see the wax cast. And the wife goes, yeah, and tried it on. Yes, it fits and the whole bit. And so that's, I think, fascinating in walking the talk. You're not just talking about it. So part of the things I noticed here is the the staff is excited to be here. You like being here. So talk to me about the leadership that you offer for your company and kind of how that keeps your edge both in the marketing space and in the sales motivation that your team here has. I have worked for so many different organizations before starting my own business and, and large and small. I worked for Target as a store manager. I worked for Victoria's Secret as a store manager. And then I worked for a small advertising agency locally. And I just saw so many things about different leadership styles. And I really took away everything that I could from every manager that I had. And one of the things that I found went the furthest with my team when I was a manager at Target was just gratitude. When people do something that goes above and beyond the call of duty, just being thankful and recognizing that can make such a big difference. And when I was working for the advertising agency, the hardest part about you are always having to go above and beyond because it's long hours, it's hard hours, and you're dealing with a lot of other people's money. And you have to be sure that you're putting your heart and soul into it. And in that situation, it was the reverse, where it's such a small company and everybody's so hyper-focused on getting their own tasks done that management just said, okay, you know, another day, another dollar, rather than, man, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you were here till two in the morning to make sure that that buy came together the way it should. And so with opening up this store, how do you motivate people? And money is a great motivator. So then how do you do that in a non-competitive way where you can make it a team experience? 
And I really wanted my business to be a profit sharing company. I've been previously, you know, kind of scoffed at almost like, why would you share your money? And for me, if you're building a business from the ground up, why wouldn't you? It makes so much sense to share everything that comes in and give it back to the people that make you successful because I'm not a jeweler and I can't sit at the bench and, you know, play with fire and make a ring. That's completely out of my wheelhouse. I'm a stone cutter. <laughs> and so when you take the equation to mean I'm a part of something bigger and while I'm the one who has to make the big decisions, I can't do anything with my business without my team, then how do you turn that around and help motivate them? And with the profit sharing model that we have, it puts the ownership in the hands of everybody that works here. So instead of me micromanaging and having my fingers in everything, I can trust my shop that if they see something that's not running efficiently and they know that it's losing money for the business, they say, that's money out of my pocket. So how do we fix it? And they've come up with some beautiful, simple solutions just from practice in the shop and sharing ideas with me of ways that we can streamline our processes that saves us money, makes us more profitable, so everybody gets a cut. I think as you talk, and so, you know, you have this vision, the vision came from somewhere, and then you kind of go, how do I take and instill this culture that you're talking about? Let's say I'm the brand new employee. Right. And I'm coming on board and go, let me tell you how this works. What do you say to that new person that's coming on board? I mean, we have weekly meetings, but we, from the very beginning, when we're starting training with a new person, we always say, whatever experiences you've had in the past with management, don't even think about that as a part of the equation. Think of this as your safe space. This is your second home. I mean, we spend as much time with each other as we do with our spouses. And so when someone is coming into the business, it's, this is your secondary safe space, and this is where you can share your ideas. And a part of it is, as an owner and as a manager, you have to be willing to listen because you never know when the next big idea is the one that saves your business. And just because it doesn't come from your own brain doesn't mean that somebody in your company doesn't see a way to fix a problem. So if you put on blinders and you look away from all of the opportunities that could be right in front of you because there's suggestions from your team, you can't let pride get in the way. You have to be willing to take it from somebody else's perspective and say, maybe I am approaching this wrong. Maybe I am thinking about this wrong. And let them be a part of the tools that fix the problems that you may have or just expand on the successes that you're having and make them even more successful. Well, you know. You and I talked briefly about this before the episode, that it's not just what you're talking about. You can see it in the growth of your company because you've doubled, right, in the past couple of years. So we started almost six years ago with our first year's projections of 200000 And for a jewelry store in our city, that would be a pretty successful year. Our first year, we did 405000 So double what we projected. And and then it was, where do we go from here? And it was putting projections out there, but working towards those goals. How do we appeal to more customers? And a big part of that is customer satisfaction. You know, people are going to share a very good experience with other people. And that's a big factor in growth of any business. Well, you know, I'm going to jump in real quick. Like we were talking about 
before we started recording, this coming Friday, you guys are going to do the casting of my wife's ring. So we're going to go from the waxed to the metal. And you guys said, would you like to come in and watch? I'm going like, who else does that? (laughs) And so, you know, it's part of the experience. And my wife is highly excited about coming in and being able to be part of that. And I think that is very, very key because in so many situations, you never get to see into a workshop what that environment is like. That reminds me of a chef's kitchen. Yeah. And we have the wraparound windows because jewelry manufacturing is dirty business and we want people to be able to see that. But in a very small way, we end up being a part of people's lives for the rest of their lives. And if they don't have a phenomenal experience, we're the ones to blame. And so we need to make sure that every person that comes in loves what their experience is, but also shares that experience. And again, being a part of it is huge just to be able to say, I got to see my ring be cast, or I brought in sketches on a napkin and they turned it into a reality. And we've had that happen. Everything about the way that we function is we treat it, that person coming in our doors. I mean, they are absolutely paying our paycheck. So we need to treat them with respect and compassion and educate everybody that comes through the door so that way they can share that experience. And it's even the same with my team. If they learn something, if they go to training somewhere and they learn something, they are excited to come back and share it with us. So it's sharing knowledge and it's sharing our passion. All of us are very passionate about jewelry. (laughs) Well, it's apparent. We were pretty blown away by the visual representation on CAD. And so for you, innovation is obviously a key component of your success. You know, how did that start for you? And what was that decision like when you decided to use this particular tool or even this one that allows people not to use a loop to look at stones? With technology, again, there's a lot of jewelers that saw their heyday in the 80s and really just feel like business as usual is the way to go and big box stores included. But we are just finding that the technology that's out there really makes everything as the sky is the limit. Now, we've had people come in that have bought their own CAD software and tried to design a ring. And it doesn't quite work the same way because when you scale it down, what you see on the screen versus in reality, you always have to be respectful of metal tolerances and I mean, just size in general when you're on a computer monitor versus when you're creating a jewelry piece. The technology that we invested in, we had the opportunity through the years. Pedro, the very first jeweler that I ever started with, actually got his training back in 2007 when the software that we use was brand new. And he was working for a jewelry store in Wisconsin. And they just said, okay, everybody's going to learn this type of CAD software and we're going to take it and run with it. So when he came on board, he shared the knowledge of CAD. It got me excited about it. Now, my husband had experience in other CAD design software, more for architecture and things like that. But it was software that was absolutely necessary. And the big reason being people are very visual. And it's really difficult if you're building a business that has very little inventory to help people visualize what it is they're buying into. And there's no better way than to be able to give them a picture. I mean, you even saw how we can put a hand model into the picture that's the size of the hand of the person who's going to be wearing it to say, scale-wise, this is what this is going to look like. And if you go into a store and you're seeing production jewelry, you're going to see the same thing from store to store to store because 
90% of what's in big box stores all comes from the same three countries and same 20 manufacturers, and that's it. And that's why people sometimes come in here almost feeling exhausted because they've gone to every big box store in the mall and all of the larger stores in the city. And it's that was my wife's experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, here's the mount, here's the basket. Geez, let's see if we can, or would you like this particular? And it was, yeah, that's not what you're looking for. And so because we don't have that live inventory, we just had to have a way to be able to share with people. This is what you're investing in. This is what you're looking at. This is what you're planning for and help kind of hold their hand and say, even with what you're seeing on the screen, we can make little changes. We include two hours of CAD design changes in every design that we do. And then even when we go to wax, once somebody sees it and holds it and can really interpret the proportions, if there's changes that they want to make from there, then they can. But if it was a hand carved piece, yeah. Not so much. The hand card is going to be a little grumpy and, if you ask right. them to change. <laughs> the thing I think is interesting and, and thought about it a lot is the ownership of the experience by the guest. Because you kind of go, that's my design. Regardless of whether it came through on CAD or whether you were driving the CAD design at the time, they go, well, I tweaked it here and tweaked it there and this and that and the other, and that's my design. You know, shifting gears a bit, I'm thinking about your growth curve. And so you, you have this particular management insight that you got from your previous experiences. So with that management insight, how do you apply that when you're growing faster than your projections? There's a lot of things that you can be looking for when you're getting ready to hire on a new person and try to stay on top of the growth that you're experiencing. And we almost encountered a situation where we very nearly made a very bad decision in the hiring process. And the one thing that we stepped away from was interviewing for the personality to fit the team. You never know how someone is going to be from an interview to when they come on board, but there's a lot of big indicators when you're going through the interview process. And the big takeaway that I had from that is you can't just go in and look at someone on paper and say, well, this is exactly what we need. And their interview was a little weird. Like we were desperate at the time that we were getting ready to bring. Now, this is when we were hiring our fourth employee. So years ago <laughs> for us now. How many employees do you have now? Eight full-time employees. Yeah. Okay. And we just encountered a very abrasive personality, but he had all of the other bells and whistles that we were looking for. And it wasn't until we were getting really close to having him on board full time and he was moving across the country and everything like that, that there were a couple of statements that were made over the phone that it was like, Ooh, this is kind of a red flag and we really need to step back and reevaluate. And I think that when you have that initial feeling up front of, okay, everything's great. This is what we need, but the personality doesn't feel right. You should really trust that gut instinct because since then, when we're interviewing people, we really do bring them on board to spend a half a day here and spend time with the team just to see how everybody feels around that person. And I think that there's a lot in making sure that when you're bringing in new ingredients to the soup that you don't bring in something that doesn't belong. For us, the most recent employee that we added, it was like adding carrots to the stew. It was like she was meant to be here all along. And that's really what the focus should be now. It takes all types to run a business, and I recognize that, but I really do think that just being aware of who you're interviewing and how they're interacting with the team 
is a big indicator of whether or not they're going to be successful in your company. You can't, you know, force a square peg into a round hole. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think about, you know, between Victoria's Secret and Target, the quantity of people you must have come through the door on hiring and the wealth of perspective that came from that whole experience. So with that, you weren't always growing like this. You were a lean startup in the very beginning. And so on the human resource side, on a lean startup, if you were to look back over that time frame, is there something you'd do different? I can't really say there's anything that I would change. We dodged a bullet with not hiring the person who didn't feel like a right fit. But I think we've been very strategic in how we hire. When I was first starting the store, I said, I need the best jeweler I have ever met in my life and I need him on board. And I don't know if I can afford him, but doggone it, I'm going to try. And so a part of my startup loan was I put two years of his wages in as a part of the loan. And explaining it to the bank, I said, I think that I can make this work if I have the right person to start. But if I don't have him, I'm not going to have the talent that I need to run the kind of business that I want to run. How did the bank take that? Because you did SBA, right? I did SBA. And the thing that I found is when you can smartly justify the decisions that you're trying to make, instead of just saying, I need this money because, especially working with a small bank, they're very receptive. Now, when we had first started going the loan process, I did try speaking to a few larger banks and they were like, it's not $10 million, you're not worth our time. And that was... Off-putting, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) So for someone starting out and wanting to start a small business and wanting to go that route of SBA, the biggest relationship that you can build on is a strong relationship with a local bank because you're literally taking your life and your little nest egg and saying, please, please, sir. They are your business partner. Yes. And can I please just have a moment of your time and a moment of your money <laughs> to make this happen? But they're more willing to listen to the reasons why and the how and the plan than just looking at a broad numbers picture. In your business, creativity is a key component of what you bring to the table. Was that a skill set that you always had? Or how did that get instilled or created in you? I grew up in a very unusual household. My mother was a painter, and my father actually built bakeries for a living, and large-scale bakeries, the ones that do 500,000 loaves a day. But when he got ready to retire from that business, he had a plan to, I'm going to go into building homes and we're going to move out into the country and we're going to make it work. And it was scary there for a couple of years. My brothers are significantly older than me and were long since out of the house and married and I was a teenager. And there was a winter that if my dad hadn't shot a deer while hunting, we wouldn't have had meat on the table. And my family was a very proud family. And so it was, we're not going to go the route of seeking help from anybody or anything. We're going to figure out how to make this work and we have to make this work or we're going to starve. And that was hard because as a teenager, you know, everybody's about the brand names and things like that. And I was the kid that it was, we were starving. And I saw my dad's entrepreneurial spirit where he said, okay, if I can't build homes and if I can't figure out how to find business, then I'm going to find another way to bring money into this household. And so he started subcontracting services anywhere he could. You know, if somebody had a broken water pipe and they couldn't afford a plumber, 
he would go in and he would help for $50. And, you know, yeah, it's unlicensed contracting and we could get into another tangent on that, but it was, this is how we're going to survive. And so even with starting up this business, I remember that. And my big takeaway was when my husband was letting me put everything on the line, our house, our retirement, our cars, our everything that we had just set aside through the years and risk it all, you can't fail and you can't let yourself fail. And you have to look at little failures as opportunities. And and it's a phrase that I hear so many business owners say, but that is the approach that you have to take. You can't give up because something doesn't go right. You have to say, okay, it went wrong. Now, how do I turn it around and learn from it and make myself a better business person? The cost of tuition. Absolutely. <laughs> it is a common story. And you kind of go, I just want to make sure I don't do the one that absolutely takes me out so I don't load up the gun and shoot at one thing. And I think about there's a generation that grew up in the Depression and they behave a certain way. And I think about the nature of what you observe firsthand because you suggested that you still do your own books. Yes. And there's nothing like keeping your finger on the pulse of your business. Now, do you still have the same bank that you started with? No. Why did that relationship change? The bank sold to another bank and everybody jumped ship. And so I tried reaching out to find a new personal banker when the transition happened. And I never got a call back. Imagine that. Customer service. That's the antithesis (laughs) of what you do. Yes. You know, because we called in one time and we asked to speak to you and says, I'm sorry, she's with another guest, a client. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. (laughs) You know, so for you, you're working on branding your company. And so, you know, you're working on, so we've got this brand, we have the markets that you're delivering value to. So what is it that you do or think or pursue to continue to brand your company? I really want people to recognize revolution as a change in the market. I mean, revolution being the defining term. I have had the opportunity to, and I mean, still to this day, work with a lot of other jewelry stores because of the technology that we have here. We're able to assist when there's emergency situations for other jewelers. But as a whole, I feel like revolution as a term is a change of thinking and a change of process. And I always wanted to be the game changer, not just in our market, but in the industry. And there's so many places that get stuck in the old school way of thinking because it worked for 20, 30, 50 years. And it's not just in the jewelry business. It's in so many different businesses. And for me, the idea behind the branding is to have people see us as the place that you can go to do something differently. And I want to be the place that everybody else strives to be But I mean, obviously, there's magic that happens here that we're very fortunate to have created that can't necessarily be replicated. But I really do feel like revolution is doing something different, finding a new way and making it a reality. And I just wish that there were more businesses that when they start to see struggle or failure or anything like that, that they take a new approach and Again, our marketing, we're in movie theaters, we do social media, we're on TV, we're on radio, we, you know, focus on, but it's not spreading thin. You focus on key areas in those modes of advertising that work for you. And the best advice I can give to anybody is if you only have a thousand dollars a month to spend in marketing, then spend that where you visit. 
So if you listen to the same radio station every single day, start with that. Start advertising on that one radio station that you listen to. But don't spread yourself too thin. Hyper-focus the money that you have. And again, working for an ad agency for so many years, that was the place that I would see a lot of companies coming in and spending their marketing dollars. They wanted to touch on everything. But the campaigns that were the most successful were when you were focusing the money in a hyper-focused manner to a certain demographic at a certain time of day. And that's where the results would come in. And so that's what we do with our money. We know that there's certain TV segments that we participate in that always drive clients into our business. And we know that on Facebook, there's a certain way of taking images that always gets a response. And so it's take a look at your own habits of the way that you perceive other marketing. And again, if you've just got a little bit of money, then start spending it in the places that you frequent. I was thinking about, as you were talking about revolution here, and you were talking about the profit sharing. So I guess I'd like to follow the trail of thought process. So let's say I'm the new employee and I said, geez, if we do this blue thing instead of this green thing, (laughs) it'll take and bring this to the bottom line. And so there's the profit behavior. And how is that relayed, shared, or shown, you know, like for the rest of the employees go, hey, look, we did the blue thing instead of the green thing. This is what's happening. And so they actually understand profit in a business and how it affects them? So I operate the business as a very transparent company. So at the end of the year, when we get through the holiday season and the insanity of all of that, in January, we go out and we do a survival party together. And that's when I share all of the numbers in like a final breakdown. And I give them our balance sheet. I give them our profit and loss report. And I don't truncate anything. I show them all of the numbers that show all of the breakdown so they can understand how our decisions are affecting the bottom line. And there's a lot of companies that when I've gone and spoken with other jewelers, they're like, that's really scary to put that much information out there to employees. And am I saying that it works for everybody? Not necessarily. But for me, I find that the only way that I can trust them to understand why our numbers are so important and why we need to work together as a team to fix it is to share how we're doing it, why we're doing it, and where we're seeing success and where we're seeing places that we can change a few things. Now, for the employees that are coming on board, initially what you see is we put up sales goals numbers and kind of like a thermometer. You know, this is how close we are and this is what we're striving for. They're used to seeing that sales goals. Right. But for, you know, some of the newer people that we've brought on board, their background was working for commissions. And, you know, there's months that you live very, very thin because it's a slow season. And then, you know, again, in the jewelry business, the holidays roll around and you get commission checks in the $10,000 range. And for me, I want everybody to work towards that bonus at the end of the year as their extra. But I want people to be loyal and comfortable knowing that they have a good paycheck, a competitive paycheck, that there's all different benefits affiliated with working here. I mean, we have a 401k plan. We do a lot of team things together so that way we can build that camaraderie. But I really think that it's forcing that mind shift of I'm a part of a team. I'm not working for my commission check. I'm working for everybody's, you know, the roof over their head and, you know, dance lessons for their daughters and 
softball for their sons or whatever the case may be. It's really a matter of how do we work together to hit these goals and be successful for each other. And taking that competitive element out of commissions and shifting it to profit share is really where that mind shift happens. And the newest team member that I hired has only worked for commissions her whole time in the jewelry business. And, you know, she was always making around $10 an hour plus whatever those commissions were. She's making significantly more than that. And she has a very solid paycheck now that she doesn't have to wonder month to month to month, how is this going to affect me? Do I have to make that sale? Instead, it turns into how do we make this work for this customer? And I don't offer financing here. I don't believe in it. When people are coming through our doors and they have a budget in mind, I want to figure out a way to respect that budget so that way they want to come back rather than looking at a credit card statement every month and saying, Negative reinforcement. Yeah, I shouldn't have bought that $10,000 ring, but now I'm locked into it. With us, when they come in and they have a budget, we respect it and we figure out how to get them the things that they want and make it work. And again, educating them about what options there are to get them into the piece of their dreams without having to go into a tremendous amount of debt. Because we're not paying those commissions, nobody feels the need to pressure anybody into doing something that they're not ready to do. And so our customers feel a difference because when they're coming in, they're just being respected and we're helping them find a solution to what it is they're looking for. You know, in in thinking about your approach to entrepreneurship, which admittedly is not mainstream. (laughs) So if you were to offer advice to a new business owner or, or the head of a company or CEO, what advice would you offer that person if they were doing it for the first time? Be prepared to accept change. I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned in any business I've been involved in. I have seen businesses fail miserably because they're not willing to accept that change is coming. And I think that if you say, well, this has worked for us and we had an off year, what can we change or what can we fix? Oh, no, nothing. It was just an off year. There's more happening if you have something that's a little bit off. And I think recognizing that and adapting to it, identifying what that problem is. And for us, we've always experienced growth and we've always had profitability. Knock on wood. (laughs) But 2017 was a boom year for us. We put up sales goals and I had said to my team, 25% sales growth. That would be phenomenal this year. And my head jeweler in the back said, well, what are you going to do if we do 35% growth? And I said, well, if we hit 35% growth, I'll take everybody on a cruise. And, you know, keep your promises because they did it. We had 38% growth that year, which is mind boggling to me. And so putting that number up and everybody realizing what had just happened, and it was mid-December, we still had two weeks in the year to go and we had hit that number. To be able to celebrate together, to be able to, again, growing up in the way that I grew up, it was an environment where your handshake is your bond and your word is your bond. And I really do believe that that more entrepreneurs and small business owners need to do that. If you say you're going to do something and your team helps you make that happen, then stick to it. Yeah. It's not what you say. It's what you do. Absolutely. For you, common misconceptions about you being an entrepreneur in your role. 
<laughs> I have a lot of other business owners locally that I have different lunch meetings with because they need help with marketing or they need help with team management. And I think that being a mentor when you've found something that works is very important to help people learn from the mistakes that you've made or just to be a shoulder to cry on because that happens a lot in this business. But one of the big misconceptions is everybody thinks I have oodles of college degrees and things like that backing me up. And it's not something that I normally ever share, but I have no college degree. I have barely a college education. I went to school for one semester and realized that college wasn't for me. I am a very focused person that I find I get the most gratification out of what I'm doing when I'm working with my hands and I'm sharing knowledge. And when you think 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, universities really weren't a thing. And the way that people get better is by sharing knowledge and learning from each other. And I think that there is this big paradigm shift that's coming because we've had such a dramatic loss of hands-on labor force. And that's why so many jobs have gone overseas, but it doesn't need to be that way. In the United States, there's this tremendous opportunity for people to be willing to share knowledge of hands-on labor. The Apprentice Program, which you are a product of. Yes. Let's talk about your passion. <laughs> so being the youngest child of three, my brothers were forced to drag along their baby sister when they were doing extracurricular activities. And I had one brother that was very interested in fossil hunting and mineral hunting. And so growing up, I was always drug around behind my brothers and I was digging in the dirt looking for crystals. And I loved it. And it was just a really cool hobby. When my husband and I got married, I wanted to introduce him to what's now commonly known as rock hounding and take him to a couple of public dig sites where you pay a fee and you spend a day playing in the dirt and pulling out crystals. And that is what led into my apprenticeship opportunity. For our one-year anniversary, my husband was talking about getting me a pendant. And he said, why don't we have one of those crystals that we found together cut? Well, I know that rocks come out of the ground one way and you buy them in a jewelry store another way. And I had never made the connection that there's somebody in between that does the cutting. And so I reached out through a local jewelry store and just said, do you know anybody that happens to do rock cutting? And they were like, oh, yeah, you need to contact this person. So I called this gentleman and he said, oh, sure, bring your crystals to my house. We'll sit down. We'll have a cup of coffee and we'll take a look. And I went in thinking that I was going to meet somebody who could cut my rock. That was it. And after a couple of cups of coffee in about three hours, he said, if you like rocks this much, you really should learn to cut. And I was just blown away that he would even offer. And so he took me on as an apprentice. And I did quite a few classes in his basement, you know, on this little rock cutting machine and learning how the formulas are written and how you interpret them. And after about a month, he turned me loose and he said, there is I mean, I helped him with a couple of repairs and did the journeyman process even. And then he just said, you need to go out and you need to pursue this. And at the time, again, working for an ad agency, I, I had never even thought that that was something yeah, that could happen. that's not exactly congruent. Right. No. But I know how to explain to people what I can do. And I know how to get my name out there in a non-forceful way. And so I made a bunch of postcards. And I went through the phone book at the time 
And I just started mailing out postcards to jewelers all over the state of Colorado. And within two years, I had to make the decision of, do I continue to pursue gem cutting or do I continue down the path of working in advertising? And at the time, I had moved up within the ad agency to be a media buyer. And so when you're trying to balance time and decide what do you want to do, I want to follow my bliss. I want to do the thing that makes me happy and is therapeutic. And I want to sit and I want to cut rocks and I want to play with rocks all day long. And so when you start talking about how do you grow a business? It even started there where you do right by somebody. And the number of jewelers that were sharing my information with other jewelers in different parts of the country and eventually in different parts of the world, I was getting 15 to 20 shipments a week of gemstones that needed to be repaired that the jewelry store owner's previous cutter had gone blind or passed away. And it was a dying art. At the time, there were only about 150 full-time cutters, master faceters in the United States. Now, thank goodness, there's been this new kind of renaissance of gemstone cutting, and there's a new generation coming up that's doing it. But at the time, I was a part of the in-club that could handle it, and it was all because of word of mouth and sharing the information, and it grew my business. And so for the longest time, it was just gemstone faceting, and that was from apprenticeship to journeyman to turning it into a business, that was what I did. And and I did get to the point that I was making the same money doing stone cutting as I was working as a media buyer. So and it was very satisfying. Oh, yes, yeah. all day long. <laughs> so, so looking at the business and, you know, for motivation, what keeps you going to, you know, we were talking about down the road and you go, well, 20 or 30 years down the road. What keeps you motivated to look down that road? I look forward to not only meeting the children of the people that come in and and buy wedding rings and their marriage is, you know, their family is expanding, but being a part of grandchildren and just other family members and being involved in so many different people's lives because we did touch them and we did have a positive impact. And there's an entire generation of people who don't know what it's like to have a family jeweler because they're going... They're going away. Yeah. And I want to bring that back. I mean, the number of smiles and hugs and happy tears and, and even sad tears when we're mourning together or celebrating together, whatever the case may be, just to be a part of that, I treasure it. And it's really easy to get out of bed in the morning and to come in and say, I'm affecting somebody in a positive way. And how can I make today even better than the last? So for you, you know, I was going to ask you about self-talk. When you get up in the morning, some days are better than others. Oh, yeah. Is there that internal discussion that you have or some sort of self-talk that just keeps you fired up and going? I go back to when I was writing my first checks out of the store's account of the first money that we had made that was going out the door. I wanted to do it in a really symbolic way to remind myself where I'm starting. And the first check went to Pedro because he was the employee that he was the person who said yes. He took a risk with you. Absolutely. The second check was to the vendors because if we didn't have supply coming in to be able to cast and do the work that we do, then we wouldn't have a business. And I paid myself last. And a big motivator for me is my employees and to see how they're getting to do things in their lives that they never thought they would be able to do. 
whether it's because they're pursuing a different career path than they had originally started down or because they're on the career path that they always wanted to be on but never thought it was going to make them a lot of money, to be able to see them enriching their lives and getting to do things with their families that previously they had only dreamt of, just being involved in that way and knowing that while I may not have children of my own, I'm creating a legacy and an expectation of how to live your life better that's motivation every single day just to to get up and to be a part of everybody else's journey and my family i mean these my team is my family you're looking at for the folks who are going like okay i'm all in how do i find you on social <laughs> media so what's the best way to find you on social media you can definitely find us on facebook revolution jewelry works also on instagram at revolution jewelry works on instagram we're posting photos of the fabrication process. On Facebook, we're posting pictures of the things that we have completed. And our website is very unique. It's rjw.rocks. So there is no .com. It's rjw.rocks. And we really just try to keep people apprised of the things that we're doing. And I mean, we post videos all the time. There's just a lot of opportunity to interact with our business but also to become educated, whether you shop with us or not. If I can teach people a few things about how to buy jewelry and how to approach their shopping a little bit differently, then it's a win for me. Is there a quote, whether you picked up elsewhere from your family, that you find meaningful or that's influenced your success? Never give up, never surrender. <laughs> that's not only a quote, but it's a reminder. And you go like, well, what's your choice? And you go, uh, I don't have one. So I think I'll stay at it. I really think that there are going to be times that it feels exhausting and it feels almost like maybe it's not rewarding, but you can't give up. If it's your dream, you can't give up on a dream. And I've watched Shark Tank and I've seen people say, oh, just let it go. But don't. If it's something that you really feel passionately about, then share it. And, you know, you may just need to change your approach. But I really do think that educating your potential consumers and sharing information and keeping your passion, that's a huge driver for success. And I really feel like it interprets to your potential customer base. So we talked about this a little bit advice, maybe some business intelligence for the small business or startup that's thinking about maybe somewhere down the road, they're going to sell their business. So what type of advice might you offer about that exit thought process? We built in an exit strategy. I say we, it was initially my husband and I, but the team has become involved as we've grown. For me, I want to create, again, a legacy where I don't want this feeling to go away when I'm ready to retire. And I think that for me, sharing my business philosophies and really encouraging my team to embrace them and see how they're working is a way to lead into the exit strategy, which is to sell the business to my team. I don't want to sell to a corporate environment that comes in and breaks down and destroys everything about what we've done. I'm creating wealth in my team. I'm encouraging them to save. I'm encouraging them to build their wealth. And they also know that down the road, when I am ready to retire, they are going to have the opportunity to buy the business. So if they're planning now then they'll be able to take ownership and continue the success that we've seen. 
and having it out there that someday this is going to be yours if you're in it for the long haul is a really great way to get the right people on your team that do want to affect change and do want to see the growth of the business because they believe as much as you do that they're going to be the owners someday. And it does make all the difference in the world. Well, Jennifer, you have been extremely forthcoming. And (laughs) my comment to anybody that is listening or interested, it's a remarkable experience. We were firsthand experiencing what you do. And hence, I said, I have to get you on the podcast because I thought you were unique in your approach and what you offered. And we're looking forward to telling some of the folks that are in the family of the podcasts that we have about what you do and what you bring to the table. So thank you so much for taking time. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we'll see you again here in a few days. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you.